Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. Today's guest is Helene Neville. 25 years ago, Helene was told by a doctor she needed to go home and get her affairs in order. She only had weeks left to live. The mother of two young sons ran from that diagnosis and has been running ever since. Helene has survived three brain surgeries and cancer. She's endured chemo, radiation, recurring lymphoma, and most recently, she was bedridden for nearly two years. Yet she keeps running. When she was first told she was dying, she signed up for and completed the Chicago Marathon. Since then, she became the first person to run across every single state in America, amassing nearly 14,000 total miles. And she did it alone. This summer, she plans to run across much of Canada from Thunder Bay to Victoria, British Columbia. Helene's remarkable story epitomizes what it means to be resilient. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Helene, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you so much. So let's just start out with what your definition of resilience is. My definition, I probably live it every day, no matter what they give you, whether it's a bad prognosis or just things aren't going your way. To me, I feel like there's always somebody worse off. So we just have to pick ourselves up and carry on. Like if you think about, I ran through Louisiana five years after Katrina. And when I was running through Louisiana, they were facing yet another devastating blow, the BP oil spill, and they just carry on. And that's resilience. And despite obstacles, age, you just have to keep getting up and fighting. Your resilience obviously includes getting knocked down and getting back up, but it seems like endurance is one of the really important parts of your resilience. And we'll talk about your running in a little bit, but I wonder about endurance and how that factors into your definition of resilience. Um, well, re- endurance and stamina, it's kind of like, you know, when I was sick in the very beginning in the 90s, I'm a, I, I've been a coach since the 80s, a high school coach, and I became my own coach. You just have to keep telling yourself whether it's, all right, I'm going to go from my bed to the couch and that's a success. And then you build upon that and you, you just have to, you can't pack it in. You can't fail. You can hope, but if you don't put any action behind hope, you're, you really go nowhere. In my opinion, then what if we put action behind what we hope for? You alluded to being sick. So help our audience understand the challenges that you've overcome with cancer and maybe other other challenges you've had? In the 90s, I had not Hodgkin's lymphoma at stage one mild. Did a little chemotherapy and radiation, but then it abscessed in my brain and I actually ended up having three brain surgeries between 91 and 97. Then finally, I guess they got it. And then my immune system was really shot because of being so sick for so long and on pretty strong medicine. Then in 1998 in July, that's when the oncologist I was living in Des Moines said, you're not going to get better and maybe you should, you know, look at your affairs. And 
I went home from the hospital. That was July of 1998. And I, rather than get my affairs in order, I signed up for the Chicago Marathon. Oh, it seems like it makes logical sense. I know, right? Was that denial or what were you thinking at the time? Well, yeah, I heard what they said and I've heard it again and again, but I didn't let it soak into my spirit. And then my sons were at that time 13 and 11 and I they just didn't want them to have this fear in their brain about their mom's health. And like from that moment on, I just wanted to create positive memories. And so we went out and I had 77 days to train. I never ran a marathon. I was a very good run, runner, but I was a sprinter and uh, middle distance. And we mapped out a dirt road in West Des Moines. And it was six miles exactly. And my 13-year-old drove my little Jeep alongside and my 11-year-old rode his bike. And the first day I was only able to go maybe 600 yards. And so by the time the marathon came, I was only able to run six times. My longest run was six miles. And I did that three times. And then we drove 26 miles. And I'm like, can't be that bad. It must be that point, too, that kills people. We're doing all right. And then when my sons were out there with me, I just said, I gave them specific instructions. If mommy collapses, throw me in the back seat and drive me to the hospital. And then some friends went with me to Chicago for the marathon. And on the way, I was super excited. There was an outlet mall. And you know, you're supposed to break in shoes and clothes, everything that you wear for a race. But I found mango shorts, mango sport bra, mango fila racing flats. And, and then wouldn't you know it, the store right next to this athletic store sold makeup and I found mango lipstick. And I'm, I said, if, if I have to go home to Iowa in a hearse, at least I'd look good. The mango lady from West Des Moines. Wow. Yeah, right. So did did you tell your sons back in 1998 that the outlook looked dire for mom? I did. And I actually, you know, took them to counseling and they were like, there's nothing wrong with us. Why are we going? I was forcing them to go. And then the doctor told them and we we just didn't focus on that. It was all about joy and creating joy, creating memories, all of that. So in, in 1998, you get this diagnosis, you're, you need to get your affairs in order. Are we to assume that your cancer, or the lymphoma just went away or have you, have you had challenges since then? Yeah, a few on and off, but it never really went away. I guess it went to sleep and there were close calls. Well, after my big run around every state, I finished on my 59th birthday in Alaska and then COVID happened and ran to the front line. They went to an underserved facility in New Mexico. And it was unbelievable. It was pretty traumatic for everybody. Completely overwhelmed. It was an underserved facility. So there wasn't a lot there. And you had no time to even meet the other travelers or talk. And the patients couldn't leave their rooms. People would come to the window, their family members. But then when people passed away, you know, we had to call the family and that, and then I had to keep CPR to somebody and she didn't make it. And, but the only good thing about all of that was that 
we had a mask, face shield and goggles. And so the patients couldn't see that we were in tears most of the time or super stressed out. And it was really difficult. And, and everybody was short staffed. And I had to call the woman's son. She passed away. Wasn't even expected to pass away and couldn't get a hold of him. But I called, then I had to call her grandson and it's probably the age of my sons. And he just cried and cried on the phone. And that was really hard to take. Describe running across the country. You've done it now. Well, it's a, a number of different runs across, up and down and across the country. It's absolutely amazing what you've done. In, in the beginning, I, I went just to reconnect with my mom's spirit and just knew she was out there and I was still grieving her death. To inspire nurses, I, I just wanted to acknowledge people that live on the fringe of society. I didn't go through Lily White America. I went through the worst of the worst and, and I'm so glad I did. And I never said no. I never refused anybody's generosity. And the first run, I had an RV that pretty much broke down in every city. And the drivers that I recruited, you, you know, most of them smoked, drank, ate fast food. And most of the time, it was never about the runner. Like they would drop me on the Interstate 10 and drive 30 miles, hoping, I was hoping that they would set up camp, cook for me. But some of them went to a bar, you know, or casino. And after that run, I, ditched that idea of the RV and took my own vehicle. And logistically, it was it's mind-boggling, but I just always had faith that the people I would encounter, maybe they've been out there waiting for me all along because it was the people themselves, the word I use to describe them is beautiful. Everybody just the least... The people with least to give usually gave the most, and everybody was just welcoming. So the, the my car, which we named affectionately Wilson, like a Castaway, the soccer, and it even you know was painted like that. And people signed it. I think we archived ten thousand signatures. I would just drive that to wherever I was ending that day, hitch a ride, or find a ride, or look for somebody at a truck stop to drive me whatever it was, 25, 30 miles back to where I finished the day before. And believe it or not, even in the most desolate areas where it's just void of people or any facility at all, I, I, people came to the rescue. And so they would drop me at the finish line and they would place water bottles along the highway and I would run, I would take about eight hours or so to run all day, and I loved it. I don't, I didn't really want people around because my cadence and my rhythm and my focus, I just didn't want that changed. Or, and I don't want to be out there running and worrying about, am I too slow or are they bored waiting for me? It was, I just wanted nothing in my brain other than what I was doing. Where did you stay? Did you stay in your car? I'll give you an example from Florida to Maine. It was 18, maybe almost 1,900 miles. And the vehicle, because we got it back and forth, it's had, oh boy, that was 18, maybe 4,000 miles. 
Actually, on the Dalton Highway, those 414 miles that the company donated us a pickup and to get through that, that awful road and in a little casita, a little camper. It was brand new. And when we finished it, got to the finish line, the, the person who donated it, he, it was his company and he was there. I'm like, here's your truck back. It had 3,500 miles on it. Because people that flew in, they had to fly into Fairbanks, and that was a long way, eight hours each way, and put a lot of miles on it. So I would try to stay at somebody's home where maybe I still had 100 miles to get there on foot, and then I would stay to 100 miles north or wherever I was going further, and that worked the best. And how did you find these places? random or people on Facebook or so through social media. I found this guy's number at what truck stop. I thought it said he was the mayor and I called him and asked him if he would help me. And he's not the mayor, but he helped me for two days. <laughs> and then he happened to be an auto mechanic. So he was working on my vehicle. Well, you, you must have an incredible faith in humanity. I do. And even more so now it's, it's just, like I said, it's beautiful. And people that suffer life's monsters, I, I did too with being sick. And it, just to share our, not our battle scars, but just to share that how resilient we truly are. It's already in us. We just have to tap into it. And, and maybe when you're at the top, or near the top, it's our duty to reach back and pull the rest up with us, not leave them, because we're all together as a team. Like, my community is my country. To give people some context, in 2010, you ran 2,520 miles from California to Florida. In the summer, you probably experienced some, some real extreme heat. And it took you 93 days to do that. And I did the math on it. That's 27 miles a day if you average it out. Did you run every day? I did. That I didn't take a day off. I didn't, I didn't know about any records. And I wasn't doing it for records. It, sure, it was an athletic feat. But it was more like a humanitarian experience or journey for me. So I didn't know the rules. And there aren't any rules because no one's ever done it. So I just knew I had to get up and run until I was tired. And so that, I think the longest run that during that run was 60 miles. So you've run from California to Florida. You've run from Vancouver to Tijuana. I did. And that's, that's almost 1600 miles from Florida to Portland, Maine. What else have you done? In 2013, when I started in Vancouver to run to Mexico, I, prior to that, my 56-year-old brother passed away unexpectedly, and they, they wanted to take him. He wanted to travel, and I'm like, travel he shall. And so from that moment on, I would sing, he ain't happy, he's my brother, everything I used to do. And then the UPS knocked on the door and handed me two boxes of ashes and an urn. And I'm like, he is freaking heavy. But I already promised I'd put him in my backpack. And then I thought, you know, 
Canada to Mexico is downhill, right? And so in addition to stopping at schools, cancer centers, hospitals, they stopped at every fire station along the way. He was a musician and they stopped at every every music store, which was really phenomenal. They would take his urn and walk around, show the urn, you know, point to the all the new guitars. And it was pretty awesome. Nobody had to do anything to accommodate me, but I think they understood that, yeah, that what I was doing, that I was out there speaking to the broken, to the poor, the sick, the hopeless. And, and I was really one of them too, you know? So they accepted me. If you were to articulate your why, what would it be? My run is to inspire others to dream something that they maybe wanted to do and just to display what could be done, the human potential that we don't know the end of that. But my why was really to just connect people through love and acceptance, no barriers, no color, no, just, just us as our hearts, connect our heart. That's all I wanted to do. It seems like you're doing that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's so amazing. Congratulations. And just a passion for our country. We're, we are all stewards of this country and we better get together on the same page or, you know, these, these ridiculous things people are fighting about. That's not going to clean up our lakes and oceans and our infrastructure. None of that stuff that they're complaining about has anything to do with, you know, when I ran in 2010, was homeless, extreme poverty, unemployment, addiction, you name it. And, and a lot of them were brown and black. When I ran from Canada to Mexico, the, the identical problems, they're all white. So just like cancer, it doesn't discriminate. And this poverty, all these things that are going on that really, well, our elected officials that we really outnumber, but they're not doing much to address. I saw everything on foot, up close and personal. And I remember most of the time thinking out there, I don't know one elected official that one would ever do what I'm doing or two, who do, they're not speaking for anybody I met. Not at all. And so I just want to help people see true picture of what or country, you know, I, I went to for different reasons to love and look for my mother's spirit and just really help the hopeless. And I ended up finding a deeper love for my people, our people in our country. And like when I said inspiration came full circle, people just they dropped whatever they were doing to help. They heard my story locally and they were out there. They would come out and literally try to find me and help me. <laughs> One lady in, I think, Mississippi was running, and then all of a sudden, this pickup truck almost ran me off the road and rolled the window down. The truck was really beat up, and she didn't really have many teeth. And she's like, "Hey, are you there? That there nurse running across America?" <laughs> I said, "I am." And she's like, "Oh, I saw you." This morning on my way to work, and then I wanted to find you. 
you know, I see if you're still out here. So I calculated that she must have driven 70 miles back and forth because I was already 30 miles ahead. And she said, I just want to help you and do something for you. I brought you something. And I was like, oh, what is it? Handed me large fry, large Coke and chicken nuggets. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell her it wasn't on the running diet or in my book, Nurses in Shape. But after 30 miles, it really tasted good. <laughs> but the story of that is that this woman, you know, she was a CNA at a nursing home, which means she wasn't making much money and did all that for me after an eight-hour shift and then drove to bring me and then had to drive back. She, wanted to, she wanted to share her love with a stranger. That, that's and, beautiful. And everybody just wants to be a part of something. Like there's nothing more beautiful than, than being lifted by looking at what our potential is. So you've run across all 50 states now. I have. That's it's amazing. I, w- I just want to ask you about pain. Because as I was preparing to do this season of the show, I just had a conversation with a a friend of mine. She's a neighbor of mine. And her father is a marathoner. And he's an accomplished marathoner. I think he holds the world record for his age group. Oh, wow. And doctors were studying him because they thought that he couldn't feel pain. And that was his, his gift. Right. And it turned out that, no, he actually felt the pain. He was just able to overcome it. And so my question to you is, you must feel pain. So when you're feeling that pain, like in Chicago, when you ran that marathon for the first time and you were ill-equipped with your equipment or running 60 miles, like, what are you doing? How are you overcoming that? That's such a great question. You know, there's pain and then there's pain, right? Pain from cancer, pain from shingles or lupus and all the things I had. COVID, I had COVID. And, but I prefer, you know, the pain that is self-inflicted, like running 30 miles, running 60 miles, running a marathon top speed. That's like, I have to, I can control that pain. And so I own that pain. And it's your choice. If I'm going to hurt, it's going to be on my terms. That, that's it. Like after those brain surgeries, I did hurt. My head hurt all the time. And I'm like, well, I'll give it something to hurt about. <laughs> and I, that, you know, it's something I love to do. Yeah. So it's, it's really a choice. You have agency, you have control over this. That's, that's remarkable. It's a remarkable way of thinking about it. Now, when I was, when I was in high school, I did some distance running distance in track was at the mile and two mile. We ran cross country. It's, you know, 5k. The longest run I've ever done is 13 miles. I I can tell you that I absolutely hate running. I hate distance running. And a big part of that is the stuff that's going on in between my ears. You know, this, this, how this is boring or this doesn't feel good. and so. I'm just curious for you, what's your self-talk? Like when you're running eight hours, 16 hours, 35 hours straight, what, what are you saying to yourself? Are you able to switch off or what, what's happening there? That's such a great question. I am able to switch off. I 
being in nursing, which is yeah. very stressful, and then being sick. I'm, it's an endurance sport, right? Nursing is an endurance sport. Oh, yeah. And labor-intensive, and it's awful. You know, I'm a nurse on one side of the bed, and then I ended up being on the other side of the bed to trust and trusted in the, the nurses to have compassion. And But I, when I'm out there, it's like being, I, I decompress. And it's not the distance. I don't even think of the distance. I just think how free I am and peaceful. And I remember in Alaska, when one of my friends was with me and I told her on the walkie-talkie, I'm like, you know, drive up here. I, I got to talk to you. <laughs> of course, he thought, you know, a bear's chasing me. I don't know. And I just said, take your headset out and just listen. She's like, I don't hear anything. And I'm like, exactly. It was the most peaceful, incredible thing. We live in so much noise and background noise, all this white noise, unnecessary noise. And it was, I, I love being out there because it's a sense of freedom, freedom from illness or any, anything that, that might, you might be suffering from. And I'm a dreamer and I like to take those dreams and become a doer. So make it out there and just go, point my feet in one direction and go until I drop for the day. <laughs> what you have two adult sons? What are they saying to you, Mom? What are you? What are you doing? I'm concerned about you. They, from the very beginning, you know, after I was sick, I did the first marathon in Chicago. I went to London to do one and bodybuilding, and somebody asked them that same question, and they they said. That's all we know of her. So, you know, to them, that's what I do. And, and that was really a good answer by them because that's all they know and that's all they saw me do. I would always, you know, maybe Child Protective Services might have been able to come and get me. I don't know. But well, you did have the 13-year-old driving the Jeep. I know. But he was, well, he was advanced. And I would take, oh, let's go to the caves out. It was six miles from where we were living, and my son Danny was still on training wheels. I'm like, we are riding our bikes out there. Okay. And I look back, and they remember some of those things. Like, I'd pull up to the gas tent at the service station, and I'd be like, hey, you pump, I'll pay. And I think, he's like, mom, I was three. <laughs> and then they were at the point of my oldest son, he's, People would ask, hey, what are you going to do after high school? And he's like, I don't know. Ask my mom. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I just. Her doctor. <laughs> dental. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to say, I, I'm assuming that you have, you have developed very resilient sons. I think so. They're pretty tough and really good, compassionate people. They truly are. I mean, they're in the great career choice because they are nurturing and compassionate. And then they both smile like crazy. Yeah. It's hard. Like Danny, it's hard for, I think it's hard for some of his players to take him serious because even if he's not smiling, his eyes are smiling. This is your son who's the college basketball coach? Yeah. <laughs> so they don't really, nothing really shakes them up too much, I guess. Not much. How are you funded? Self-funded. I, 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 I tried to get a sponsorship in 2010 
And I was so excited. Landed an interview with this prominent CEO of a Phoenix-based company. And, you know, I was turning 50. They weren't sponsoring, people weren't sponsoring women that I knew of. And you have to be much younger and pretty cute. And guys typically get sponsored no matter what age. So I went in to meet with him. And the night before, I was just coming off of a 12-hour shift. And I didn't have time to get my nails done. So my friend brought me his press-on nails. And I went to this interview, dressed up. And I was so nervous as he sat across the boardroom table. I started twiddling my thumbs. And one of those press-on nails flew up in the air. And landed right on his nose. Oh, no. And he stood up, walked over to me with the nail on his bed, and he said, I believe this is yours. I just wanted to die. Yeah. <laughs> and then he sat back down. He looked at me and he asked, how many fans do you have? And I'm living in Phoenix at the time. And, and I was so puzzled by that question. I said, no, I have central air. Oh, uh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> He stood up, walked to the door, held it open as I walked out. That was it. And I knew I was never asking anybody for anything ever again. So I just sell books and T-shirts and and that that does the trick. And then places to stay, people to feed me, share a meal, and then people to go out and place bottles of water and, you know, but it, it took off. I would give a speech and. For instance, the marketing director would ask for the keys. While I'm speaking at this hospital, they took the Wilson, the vehicle, changed the oil, filled it with gas and food. And they went and put all kinds of groceries in that. And that happened more than once. It was really incredible. We just want to belong. We all want to belong to something. And something yeah, good. I, I think you're right. And... That act makes us a part of your team. Exactly. They're invested. And they're part of my family. Just they're strangers that become family. And the story you shared earlier, the woman who drove, I forget in what state it was. Mississippi. Mississippi, okay. You know, you're running through her community. How often is that community just skipped over? Right. So many of those communities that you're going through, because yes, you went through Vancouver and Portland and Seattle and San Francisco on your way down to Tijuana. But how many of those 1500 person communities, 600 people in the mountains or, you know, far, far from the cities, like you're the biggest athlete they're going to see in a long, long time. Right. The most important athlete that they're going to see in a long time. Well, just somebody that they really can't wrap their head around with. Them. Well, that's true. That's and true. never been out of their neighborhood, their entire right. life. And right. I, w- I got lost and ended up in South Baton Rouge. One of my favorite stories, it was 4th of July. So everybody's on their lawn with music and shooting guns. <laughs> and I run, when I run, I smear pure white zinc oxide all over my face because the sun and I have this white kind of hat that drapes down like a veil. And then, of course, I put red lipstick on and I look like the Joker from Batman running to go do gardening or something. And 
And this guy came out of his house. He's like, are you lost? And they said, are you asking me that because I'm white or because I'm bright white? (laughs) His name was John. And I actually ended up eating dinner with him. Oh, my gosh. But he helped me walk out of a couple of guys got together to make sure I got out of there safe. And then they're like, you can't wear that white hood. They called it a hood, the hat in this neighborhood. And and when I finished and I had to drive all the fanfare last, I had to drive that old junky RV all the way back to Phoenix. And I stopped at all those places to see everybody that helped me. And it was pretty incredible because when I went through South Baton Rouge, I didn't have the RV. They were way ahead of me. They ran 50 miles a day, mostly because I was lost. But I realized in those tales, and I went through many of them, I I began to see like the interstates either built for them not to get out or some people not to get in. And, and I'm glad I went the way I did. It was really incredible. And I don't know if they saw me as an athlete, more of just, I really truly like acknowledge them for being alive. Like you said, people forget them. They're on the fringe. They're faceless. We don't know who they are, but I went to see them. I kind of had a call ring for that. How's your health now? After my run and I went to the front line March of 2020, spent my time in New Mexico and then took an assignment in Bismarck, North Dakota, at another underserved short staff facility. And seven weeks into that, I collapsed and woke up to that just really devastating diagnosis of large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that was aggressive, rare. It already, it was 100% my bone marrow and it had already spread to my liver and spleen. And they're just, they said, you know, hope for the best. And they gave me maybe eight weeks. And I couldn't start. Yeah. And I could, I was, it was bad. I don't even know what, I, I, I had no symptoms up until the day I dropped. <laughs> and that was like, yes, get your affairs in order. There's no marathon coming. And I couldn't start chemo. I felt like this race to save my life that started already. And I'm still in the locker room because I contracted COVID. Sepsis, septic shock from the port they put in. Shingles. Well, it was bad and the pain was excruciating. And so out of these eight weeks, we didn't even start chemo for six of those weeks, which meant I only had two weeks to go. And But somehow I pulled through and everything they said, okay, you're not going to get to the first of the year. I did. You're not going to reach remission. I did. And, and when, when, did, when did you collapse? What year was that? 2020, October 23rd. And then it went through pretty much two years in bed. Sick, really, really? sick. Oh my gosh. Oh and my gosh. the only time I left either the hospital or where I lived was to go to Evo in Arizona. And I had to train balance. I couldn't go down steps without help. I was so weak. And now, August 17th, my 63rd birthday, 43 years late after Terry Fox 
difficult to run across Canada where he collapsed in Thunder Bay. He started in Newfoundland. Then his can he was in remission like me and his cancer came back and passed away. And that was called the Marathon of Hope. And one of his hope was that he didn't make it. He wanted somebody to finish. Two people in Canada have done it, but no one from the U.S. And I've been wanting to do it. So I'm going to start on my birthday, 63rd birthday. And I, my portion's only 2,000 miles. And I'm gonna, only 2,000. Yeah. I'm going to finish his marathon of hope and hope for the best. So that'll be from Thunder Bay to, to like, Vancouver? Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, that's incredible. Can you give us, can you share with our audience two or three things about America that surprised you that the audience may not know that you've learned from these, these runs? I think that the people's, the generosity, again, like people with nothing or very few things to give always gave the most. Then I was so glad that because it was faith rather than fear and almost spiritual that no matter what or who asked me or invited me or offered me things, I, I said yes every time. And I'm so glad I did because I, I don't believe I missed an opportunity out there to just embrace who we are as people. And it, it was, the book will showcase and highlight all of those stories and they're mesmerizing, never ending. And I just really began to see the true picture of what we are, who we are as humanity. And that greater sense of humanity is, is truly alive and well. And it's out there living next to you and me. We just have to open our eyes and embrace it. That's all we have to do. It's there. Everybody wants that. Well, that's my feeling. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful sentiment. And I do feel you're right. And I think it's important incumbent upon us to engage without judgment, be curious, Absolutely. be compassionate and empathetic. And it sounds like you do all of those things just naturally. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much. Helene, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? No. Let's see. No, right? I, no. I'm not sure of my prognosis, but in two weeks, it'll be two years in remission. That's that really, I think we pulled off a miracle. All those people that they said, I inspired them by coming there and wanting to know about them. I never really talked about myself. I didn't, it, it was too big to even maybe think about unless you're a runner or really understand mileage. And it wasn't about that. It was just showing up in their life and right where they live, work and play and be a part of their life for maybe a night or a week. And that was really beautiful to me. And right, I, those very same people, the ones that could afford the computer, many people I met out there said, we don't have computers, we don't have anything. But yet they made a meal for me. But the people I met out there definitely came to my when I was sick. And 
struggling in the hospital, just fighting for my life. That's when these strangers became part of really a bigger family. But well, it's our world. We're all one. And so inspiration came full circle because they helped me. You're a mother and a sister to a lot of us. Congratulations yeah. for what you do. Helene, if somebody wants to buy one of your t-shirts or buy one of your books, where can they go? Well, HelleneNeville.com, it's because I let it slide. For, I was, I've been in bed for two years, literally. literally. We're getting that up and running. And I, we already have a really nifty stir Canada that we're going to sell for fund, fundraising. And the books will be, I have a Facebook page, Helene Neville, or one on the run, O-N-E, one on the run. Where all the photos, like when this book comes out, Rethink Impossible, you'll be able to read it and go along with these photos. Helene, congratulations on all of what you've done. It's really, really remarkably inspiring and motivating. And Thank you so much. I can just feel the love you have for our country and the people you interact with and you're a remarkable person and i i'm grateful for your time thank you so much and thank you for being a genius thank you for listening to 12 geniuses and thanks to the star conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show we will be back next week when i interview dr michael mattis Arrested 24 times as a juvenile, he used his resilience and the guidance from a mentor to change his path in life and become a world-class surgeon. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.